This is Get a Real Job, the podcast devoted to people who choose risk over safe bets, who pursue their passion against all odds and are doing what they want, how they want, despite people and sometimes the voices in their own heads telling them they're nuts. When the field that I wanted to work in didn't exist, I created it. The only thing you have to decide is how hard you want to work. I really never went into the design of the restaurant of not succeeding. One way or another, I was going to succeed. I'm your host, Dan Bova, editorial director of entrepreneur.com. Thanks for listening. And now, get a real job. Today's guest probably drives a much cooler car than yours, and he's definitely designed a much cooler car than yours. Frank Stevenson is one of the most renowned designers working in the world today. He has led design teams at BMW, Ferrari, Maserati, Alfa Romeo, and McLaren, just to name a few. And he now runs his own design firm, which is doing extraordinarily innovative and beautiful work in all kinds of arenas. Please welcome the very designy Frank Stevenson. How are you? Doing very well, Dan. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you are a very busy man, so I'm uh, thrilled that you were able to squeeze us in today. Thank you very much for having me on. So you're uh, you're based in uh, just outside London now? Yeah, I am. I've been here since uh, 2008. I used to live in uh, the mother of all retirement countries, Italy, which is the place that everybody should have on their bucket list to nice. visit. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't get better than Italy. Um, and I moved here in 2008 uh, to take up uh, a design position, actually to create the design uh, language, design studio, design team for McLaren Automotive. And uh, previously, they were always Formula One, but there was a decision made that they have to basically broaden their their horizons and come up with a a solution that if Formula Formula One ever went downhill, they'd have a, a backup. So they wanted to create an automotive arm to their wow. company. So it was a chance to start from scratch, start from zero, and it doesn't get better than that. That's that's pretty that's pretty incredible. Well, let me ask you: Have you gotten used to driving on the wrong side of the road yet? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it does take a while to get get used to it. I've I've been caught out quite a few times driving out of a, <laughs> a petrol station as they call it and getting on the wrong side of the road. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. So, well, before we get into your kind of, you know, uh backstory of how you got to where you are, I mean, just to give people listening uh just just a kind of peek into the kinds of things that are happening in your studio, you know, what what are some of the projects that you're working on now that you're super excited about? Oh, uh they're they're all exciting, Dan. I I I wouldn't keep doing this if um you know if I was doing boring stuff because mm. I've I've done pretty exciting stuff over the last thirty years. Albeit I started out at what we call the bread and butter side of the business, which is kind of the uh, cards that get you from here to there, um, and you don't really you know desire that car. You just need it all the way up right. to the level of cars towards the end of my career where you don't need the car, you desire it. So it's a mm. bit of an extreme uh, range of cars. But I got out in 2017 simply because I didn't want to keep repeating, you know, uh, car design in terms of having achieved um, uh, a level of recognition for McLaren as a car company, car design company. 
at the high end. I, I didn't want to just keep repeating that. I'd rather get out and do products that pretty much uh, uh, satisfy a large volume of people. Not many people get a chance to, you know, enjoy enjoy a, a supercar or a hypercar. Um, I've got it, two McLarens parked in my driveway. I just want to put that out. <laughs> Lucky you. That's and for, yeah. for, you for people who aren't totally familiar. What's 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 a uh, an approximate price tag on a McLaren? Um, probably around two hundred in dollars. Probably around two hundred and fifty thousand. You probably start around there. You start throwing some extras in there, accessories and things, and easily it starts shooting towards the sky. You know, um, that's that's your sort of entry level McLarens right around there. Then you can start getting up to the millions easily with some of the, uh, the limited edition hypercars, as we call them. Those are and, the ones I have. Seriously? You've done something I, right. Where did I go wrong in my life? <laughs> no, uh, I have a very, uh, uh, what you would call a POS, uh, a Saab from uh, 2008 that the wheels are falling off of. But anyway, uh, enough about my crappy cars. Let's talk about the amazing things you're doing. Okay. <laughs> well, I do love Saabs, uh, <laughs> especially the pre-2000 ones. Anyway, um, yeah, so I've got out and I've started to do projects that basically I'm not told by a marketing team that you have to design a certain car for a certain segment and a certain price range and all that. Uh, it's much more fun, I think, when you can get out <clears throat> I mean, it's a risk like anything. When you take on a new um, activity in your life, uh, professional activity, there's always going to be a risk, whether it takes off or or backfires or whatever. But I, you, you need that self-confidence, and if you don't go into it, you'll never know. So I'd already built up, I guess, some kind of recognition in the design automotive design field. So I thought if I get out now, start designing other stuff, you know, uh, if you build it, they'll come kind of approach. Yeah. And I was just uh, quite shocked by how soon, you know, they started coming. Um, I, I shut the door, announced on LinkedIn that I was going on my own. And immediately these, uh, well, a lot of offers came through, but I had to put up a filter uh, to sort of weed out the kind of proposals that really wouldn't be worth uh, design projects worth taking on. So I set up a proposal or sort of a filter system that the projects that I worked on had to be reckoned or considered best in their segment when they came to market uh, not necessarily the most expensive but absolutely the the go-to uh, product if you were looking for something uh, the second filter was they had to be absolutely innovative bring something new to the market not just repeat what's been out there because we have enough products in the market that do that so innovation was a huge uh, filter that they uh, had to that we had to target and the third one uh, sustainability which is the current buzzword in design, we we have to obviously think about the environment, considering the environment. And the fourth is kind of a pet peeve that I had that, or have that is the design has to be allowed to be based on biomimicry, which is the uh, the way nature designs things. You know, this, mm. this thing needing to be inspired by a fashion show or a piece of furniture and architecture or whatever to get your inspiration for a design for me is all crazy stuff nature is our best teacher of what works what looks great uh huh. what is timeless design and it might sound a little bit hokey pokey but if you really study nature uh 
nature does it right. If it does it wrong, it doesn't survive. It doesn't last. Uh, it's survival of the fittest out there. So the best design will work. And at the same time, we're ingrained with this genetic uh, disposition to love uh, certain shapes, certain proportions. And you find that all the time in nature. It's a whole different subject, but there's something called the golden law of proportions, which happens amazingly often in, in nature. It's a ratio. And if you just, what I design, I try to keep that proportion that nature uses 1.618. Um, huh. And it works every time you, you achieve this long lasting look to your designs that they typically don't go out of style or out of fashion or out of, you know, uh, they, they kind of achieve a, what we call a timeless look, which is kind wow. of like the, uh, the, the golden chalice, the, the thing we always strive to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can can you um can you give an example of maybe some design element or or the shape of a car that came from something specific that you remember? Is it like you're walking uh, through the woods and you see something and it inspires a thought, or how does yeah, that work? Yeah, I mean, you you find it everywhere. It's uh, I mean, <laughs> I could uh, every car I do has a, has has uh, not just one element, but basically a lot of elements that incorporate that that design philosophy, that proportion. Um, I've done it on everything throughout my career. Uh, probably the funniest one that most listeners might, might laugh at because it's kind of funny, but it's also very true, are the mirrors, uh, the exterior mirrors on the Mini Cooper that you guys have in the States too. Funny enough, a small car can sell in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, but the actual mirrors on that uh, first generation mini that I did that lasted till uh, from 2000 to 2006 before they changed it was the mirrors themselves are basically a human shape. Um, if you closed your eyes and you just sort of fondled the mirror cap, you'd know what it was. And I'd spent a week drawing, drawing breasts, basically just trying to design the most ideal breast and then converting that into a clay model and into 3D data. And so if you would basically feel, now that you know, you'll, you'll see it, but if you felt that you'd immediately feel like this is a nice shape. And when you start to visualize it for the first time, you don't understand, you, you understand that you like the shape, but you don't realize at first what it is. Oh, wow. <laughs> but that's why it feels natural and you have this love at first sight. It's neither masculine nor feminine because that was the purpose with the mini. We want to sort of split the market so yeah. men and women both like it. Because the moment you make a car feminine, guys won't touch it normally. And if it's uh, too masculine, women won't like it either. So you got to, with the mini, the objective was to cut a, a fine wow. between the two markets. So introducing elements that just felt right. You know, you don't know why unless somebody tells you, but it looks right and it's love at first sight. You know, if you can get that, and you've nailed it. Too many designs are coming out where it takes you a while to get used to it. And we get used to everything, you know? Yeah. Six months of looking at something, you'll find it won't have that effect on you that perhaps scared you with the first or put you off. But that's not good design. For me, good design is I want it now, not six months from now when I'll get used to it. Um, oh, that's incredible. Wow. Yeah. So uh, a, lot, a lot of questions. Um, 
you know, I was going to ask you the annoying question of where where do your ideas come from? Uh, but I'm not going to do that because that's a ridiculous question. But, um, you know, and you've you've already touched on this, but I, I wonder, you know, you're obviously extremely creative person and uh, a deep thinker. Um, have you how do you go about kind of getting these ideas and these concepts out of your head onto paper so that obviously you're not building these cars with your own hand. So to, to get that to translate across all these teams that need to be working on this. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a fun process, Dan. It's, it's, it's why studios are kind of design studios are off limits to most people because it really is where that magic happens, where, where, um, I mean, designers in the first place are considered the crazy people in any company. And that's mm. the thing. We have to be crazy because if we thought like everybody else, the solutions wouldn't be innovative or, or that typical. It's impossible to do until it's actually done and then it's possible. So we have to be the guys that sort of think in another realm where we think <clears throat> this hasn't been done before. Potentially it could be done. And then you've got to work with an equally crazy engineer situation and make it work it's really bad when you're in a team of designers and engineers where the engineers are resisting or have that typical positive minus kind of relationship where sparks are flying but it's the wrong kind of sparks Mm. so integrate good designers with very or creative designers with very creative engineers but the way it works is pretty much designers are kids most of their whole life i would say i i feel like i'm still haven't grown up and it's kind of a funny feeling because I don't feel right with people my age. I, 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 it's just the way I think I'm wired differently. I think than other professions and most designers have that youthful, you, uh, young at heart kind of approach simply mm. because it's that really didn't grow up. And, and I, I really mean that because the one thing that most people lose when they grow up is their, there, this this trait of being curious, and you know how curious kids are. They're yeah. Every day, why, what, you know, and and we have that to, in an enormous amount. That that doesn't shut off as designers grow older. So this this hunger or thirst to be curious is what really drives us to be always looking for something that doesn't exist, or why does it exist, or why can't this be like this, and that. And that element, I think, is what re- it's not creativity that makes you a designer. It's the curiosity gene, mm. I think, that you have to be born with. You can't really, develop. right? It's either you have it or you don't. And then when you're curious, it tends to make you creative because you need to express it in some kind of way. And so, what designers do is train themselves to be able to 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 take that neuro, that synapse or neuron firing off of an idea, see it in their mind. And then through a lot of practice, you know, that 10,000 hours thing, design, it's probably more like 100,000 hours, draw it to a a level where what you see in your mind is what you see on paper. And it's got to be so darn desirable and creative that you're able to convince people like managers who have no idea about design that they should invest lots of money in making your 2D Mm. ballpoint sketch on a napkin into reality. And if you can do that, then you're on your way to creating, you know, a, a product that's going to make a lot of money for the company. Um, and if you do that enough times, you'll get recognition, and you know, other companies will want you to work for them. That's kind of the path, I guess, that I've taken. Yeah. Time. It's it's always fun to see what you've actually imagined, 
in 3D in front of you full scale as a clay model that you're working with a team of clay modelers who get excited as excited as you because you're you're basically creating a baby. I mean it's not a baby, mm-hmm. but it's a baby in yeah. inside of you. And there's so much energy in that process that you don't seriously you don't count the hours. You don't want to go home, can't wait to get back to work. Mm. Something that you know is going to be out in two, three, four years or whatever. And it's a result of that idea that you had. And hopefully when it comes to market, people like it and buy it. And uh, and you get to see it on the road. It's one of your kids on the road. So um, That's awesome. More coming up from our guests. But first, a word from our sponsor. So I tend to get a new phone fairly often. They aren't cheap, but the reason I do is that it gets slow and clunky and I run out of storage and it's not pleasant to use the apps I want to use and the camera doesn't do all the new tricks. Then I think, I bet it's an even bigger problem for technology startups. You start small, you've got some okay cloud computing power, but then you find your tech struggling. How frustrating is it knowing that you probably can't handle bigger stuff? And worse, how painful is it not being able to confidently take on enterprise-sized clients or jobs? That makes it tough to grow and you're just stuck. Well, Oracle has this startup partnership you should know about. It's cleverly called Oracle for Startups. The idea is even though you're a startup, you can tap into the cloud computing power, expertise, and connections of a big dog like Oracle. You get free cloud credits and 70% off their cloud services. Plus, with multi-cloud support and no vendor lock-in, you build this out any way you want. Now you aren't frustrated and you've got the power to scale and you're free to go after your dream customers. Don't stay stuck. Go check out oracle.com slash real job. That's oracle.com slash real job. And our next sponsor. There are traditional jobs and untraditional callings. The first may offer stability, but for some folks, there's an itch that a nine to five just can't scratch. And when the pressure is on to find success on your chosen path, you need tech you can rely on. Even better, a singular mobile device that lets you get everything you need done from wherever you are. Introducing Samsung's Galaxy Z Fold 3 5G, a powerful foldable device that is opening up a new world of mobile productivity, giving you greater flexibility to get work done. The Galaxy Z Fold is not just a phone. Open it out and it becomes a tablet with an edge-to-edge 7.6-inch screen. Connect it wirelessly to a smart monitor or TV and it delivers a PC-like computing experience. You can even flex the Galaxy Z Fold 3 so it stands upright on its own while you video conference hands-free. In tablet mode, you can use the multi-active window to work simultaneously across three apps. With Galaxy Z Fold 3, you can carry less and do more. Learn more at samsung.com slash galaxy Z for work. That's samsung.com slash galaxy Z for work. And we're back. Excitement is it's the the creative power of uh, of, of uh, uh, that that energy that you can sort of 
stir up when you're designing something that you feel like it's going to be a hit. Because like the Mini, when I designed the Mini, it was 1995, and it didn't come out until 2000. But that five-year period of development, you knew it was going to be a hit before it even came out. Mm. It, it really was unique. That's, and, that's amazing. So, uh, well, first of all, I would say I, I think you need to find a new line of work because you clearly don't have a lot of passion for this one. Uh, I'm not getting that through at all. But, um, you know, when you hear about cars, you know, let's talk about, uh, I don't know, like something like the PT Cruiser, you know, something that does not hit. <laughs> Did yeah. those designers for those five years be like, oh, man, this is going to flop? No, you never know if it's going to be iconic until it's actually on the market. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> As they call it. Um, you can't predict it. But certain cars are compromised. So I think the design of the uh, PD Cruiser was compromised. I think the design of the VW Beetle when it first came out was also compromised. They're basically styling exercises, not really design exercises. Which mm. means styling is, is more just making something look good without really performing and that's more like art rather than design design has always for me been a combination of art and science blending the two together whereas the beetle was more like a piece of art didn't work very well but it looked cool as well as the pt cruiser it looked cool but it didn't work very well and uh the mini the mini had a lot of stuff going for it when i did it it was it had a had a big heritage big following in europe uh, a few movies had made it really famous so there was this, yeah. this, this love of the old, you know, the, the one that we remember, but a mistrust of can it be repeated in a sex, successful way for the 21st century? And that was the challenge to, to, to connect the past, the emotion of the past with the technology of the future kind of thing. And it nailed it because it was not only a, a sort of a, a, a true successor in terms of aesthetics, but it also carried the fun of driving into the future. So the Mini had always been sort of this car you could dominate and throw around and it was classless. You know, it was your first car. It was many wealthy people's, you know, the car for the wife or the other uh, child or whatever. So they had, it, it didn't really belong to a certain segment. Everybody had a Mini, everybody named their Mini, gave their Mini mm -hmm. name or something. So it was part of the family. And the new one was able to capture that and carry it on. So I think that, 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 in, those ingredients are what kind of made many stand out above the uh, the other competitors like the PT Cruiser, perhaps that didn't really have right, a right. past or something. And then the VW was just very packaging wise. It was it wasn't really a Beetle. It put the engine in the front, or you know, and the rear seats were very comfortable, headroom clearance. So. Yeah. So for you, it's not just like I'm. I, I want to draw. You know, the craziest looking Batmobile on the planet. It's 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 about the functionality uh, and how it operates are seem to be just as important. Or are they more important to you than what it looks like? Or or is it a fifty fifty? How how do you balance that? Well, it's for me. It's easy, Dan. I think uh, you just said it. A lot of people believe that uh, fun, uh, uh, form follows function. And I've never believed that. I think that whatever works great looks great. Mm. That's the way it is in nature. Whatever, when something works great, it looks beautiful. If it doesn't work great, it's not going to look great. Yeah. We're trying too hard to add lines or add stuff to, to balance that. But some products that, well, 
just about every product I can think of that works incredibly well, looks incredibly well. So it's, it's, it's both are equal. And um, as long as you don't try to style something and put too much, you know, you try too hard and, you know, that thing, keep it simple, stupid. Yeah. Kiss. And there's another one we use quite often, which is called Maya, most advanced yet acceptable. Because you can do something that looks very advanced, but it's totally unacceptable because you went too far. Okay. <laughs> Nobody's, you know, everybody gets shocked by the look of it, kind of like the Cybertruck, you know? Right, 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 right. So, um, you know, we've obviously cars have been innovating, you know, since they've been invented, but it seems like these last couple of years, things are innovating at, at light speed. Uh, do you, uh, do you look in your crystal ball? What do you, what do you think cars are going to look and operate like, you yeah. know, five years from now or 10 years from now, are there going to be steering wheels? You know, we keep hearing things like this. Yeah, that's that's a good one. But um, from the inside, I can tell you that level five, which is full autonomous driving that people think is going to happen fairly soon, probably won't. There are a lot of other factors uh, that have to be solved before allowing your car to let you sleep and let it do the driving for you. That's just that's going to happen in the air probably before it happens on Earth. I'm working on a couple projects now where we're uh, designing uh flying taxis where we don't need the pilot because the pilot is actually one of the more dangerous elements of airplane design. They Mm. can't count on the pilot to make the right decision. Whereas if you tell the plane, make a decision between um, zero or or positive and minus or zero and one, there's only two decisions and you can tell it to always make this decision so you can rule out pilot error. Mm. So, um, but on the road, uh, it's very difficult because of the density of traffic, the volume. If you have one smart car driving and one dumb car next to it, there's going to be an accident. You can't avoid it. Or it potentially could happen. Um, what are cars going to look like in the future? I don't think electric is the end all, the be all and end all. I think it's a stopgap formula because it's not as clean as people say it is. Electric mm. cars. To create an electric car, get it on the road, you probably have to drive a normal car between, sorry, you'd have to drive an electric car between 40 and 60,000 miles before you offset the carbon footprint of a, of a gasoline car. It's huh. amazing. Wow. Know, are driving an electric car and they're saving. No, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, so-called pollution that happens before an electric car gets on the road. Oh, wow. But what with, I, that, with the batteries and all that? Yeah, it's the the batteries are a big issue. The even the you know the building of the car itself, all of mm-hmm. these come together and don't create that offset that people know yeah. about. Um, but what I am doing, Dan, is something quite interesting at the moment, which is apart from the flying taxis that are coming to market in around 2024, 2025, um, and that's going to help us uh, relax a little bit the, the the clogging of the arteries the uh, of, of the motorways auto uh, what do you call them in the states highways sorry <laughs> yeah. um, these things are going to be flying like crazy like we've seen in the fifth element of those films they're, they're going to be a lot less dense than that and they're not privately owned they're only going to be flown by companies that have their own pilots and they'll be taking between say five and ten people max on board they're short haul, so they're probably only flying for about an hour at the most. 
pretty quick. They'll fly about an hour at 200 miles an hour. So you can start living further outside the city in cheaper areas and still get in to do your inner city work. You can fly into the city. Um, there's, there won't be restrictions on that. Um, they're going to have a super high level of safety requirement, uh, which means that they're safer than commercial, commercial aircraft. They have to be. Um, and there's ways to do that. Um, it's called redundancy of uh, critical failure components, but that's another thing. Um, so, yeah, I think there's going to be a revolution coming in the next few years where we start seeing these new ways of getting around that are quicker, uh, more enjoyable. Uh, cheaper. These don't need road infrastructure networks or anything like that. It's just a landing pad and a takeoff pad. Um, so that's so, yeah. I was going to ask. Uh, so I mean, that sounds pretty amazing. Um, so uh, uh, would these be like you know for la- like helicopter like in that they are taking off vertically and landing vertically? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, they they you'll go to uh, maybe four or five hubs in a big city. <clears throat> so um, you don't have to go out of the city to get one. Um, you get on it, you go maybe to the top of a hotel building or a parking lot or somewhere where you have uh, the space. They're not big. Um, about 35, 40 feet, square feet is uh, what they need to land. Um, sorry, uh, square centi- square meters, 11 square meters, whatever that comes out <laughs> into mm-hmm. feet. Um, but then, yeah, so these, basically, you get into them. Uh, uh, they take off vertically. They're very quiet. They're electric. Uh, they get up between 1,000 feet and 10,000 feet, they're, so they're not pressurized uh, oxygen. And then you fly directly as the crow flies to your destination, land, and uh, you're much closer than, than if you flew from airport to airport or train station. Yeah, right. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. And can you speed that up? Can can you get that going uh, before the next summer so we can beat that summer traffic? <laughs> no, there's uh, some of the news is trickling out now because most of the companies there's a lot of companies involved. You know, it's like all the different car makers at the beginning of the 19th century or the 18th 20th century. Um, so nobody really wants to show their cards yet on how far they're along. But the estimation is 2024 we'll start seeing these uh, flying around. Wow. Um, so can you, you, you touched on this before, but I'm wondering like, uh, you know, from, do you remember the feeling of, you know, something that started with a sketch to seeing it, you know, roll off of a, either a production line or maybe it was a one of a kind vehicle, but what, what's that feeling like when the thing is finally got a key in the ignition and, and moves? It's amazing. I mean, I, I've never, I, re- I love children. I always wish I would have had one, but I can imagine that the feeling is very similar to seeing your, your child uh, not only being born, but actually growing up very quickly in front of you. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> That's I mean, incredible. Sitting there, you're feeding it for the next three years, probably. But cars come out, they get you know into the motor show or auto shows, and then you get the press reactions and the public reactions, and then you get the tested, testing. And if you designed a, a dud or a failure, it's the worst feeling in the world. Whereas if you design something that is guaranteed to help the company be a success, then it's 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 a, it's a natural high. Yeah, 
Um, I know you've been, uh, I'm I'm really thankful you've been able to squeeze us in today. I know you've been uh, uh, very busy today, but I I did have a question just about, you know, you're now creating your own, um, own designs. And how does that compare to like, you know, when you worked for Ferrari or BMW, where you're kind of, you know, there's, there's this big history that you're sort of working within a framework of, whereas now do you feel like just absolutely limitless? You could do whatever you want. Like, what's that like? Um, everything's a growing situation. I think, Dan, you, you sort of get to the point in your life when you're ready for something. I mean, I, I never would have ever been able to do what I did at Ferrari if it was at the beginning of my career. It just would have been biting off more like a chew. You need experience. You need to be able to relate to other people on on the team and get the best work out of them. Um, And you have to have an eye for, from experience, based on experience, what works and what doesn't work. Working with Ferrari was, when I started, I was in my early 40s when I took on the head of design director uh, for Ferrari and Maserati. I was even, you know, nervous that I was going to fail, basically. People would be asking where the hell did this guy come from? Why did they put him in that position? Look at the big mistake he's done. Or, but you, if, if you don't do it, somebody else is going to do it. So you might as well. <laughs> the no, you can't miss the train when opportunities like that come around. So it is, it is a lot of um, responsibility. And, and, you know, if you get it wrong, you get it wrong big time. Uh, but I've always felt that, you know, if you don't, <clears throat> If you're dealt the cards like this, you better play them and, and do your best. And if you haven't, well, at least you tried. But um, I think the challenge of doing stuff on your own is a lot funner than just sitting down at a desk and designing the next hypercar, supercar. Albeit it is the best thing you can do if you're a car designer. You're working at the top end of the budget. Um, you, you, you have no, well, your competition is the best car out there. So you've got to do something better than them. Um, so that's, it's a very exciting position to be able to, to work in. But at the end of the day, I think the, the best thing that I've ever found out, and I found out a little bit late in my career is that there's nothing more enjoyable than to work, to working for yourself, to mm. be your own boss, not have the HR on your back all the time and telling, you, you know, trying to make, uh, make a reason why they exist. You know, they pick on everybody all the time, it seems, but at the same time, Left to your own devices, you do your own. You, you do your best work. You run your own schedules, and you pick your own projects. Um, I've just finished designing the world's safest infant car seat, baby car seat, based off military technology of uh, armored vehicles having to absorb the blast of a landmine, and that blast going through the armored vehicle. Typically, the armored vehicle is fine, but the soldiers inside would would feel the 10 G impact or 20 G or whatever, and it would kill them. And so I've finished, well, using this technology that absorbs all that energy, we've been able to introduce it into a baby seat now. It's wow. coming out here. And you would be shocked to know how many children, child, children die in situations with a rear end or a front end or lateral crash, even when they're buckled up because technology has just not moved on in baby car seats mm. in the U.S. since 1970. You can still buy a baby seat made in 1970 in the U.S., and it's still legal today. That's oh. the same. Yeah, it's amazing. So yeah. I was out knowing that we could actually 
incorporate this military develop invention device into a baby car seat means after even testing, there's a testing facility near Amsterdam, and we're rated at about 70% safer than the safest car seat existing on the market now. Wow. So, and it's price-wise, it's still achievable. It's not something that you know, we've developed that costs thousands or whatever. It's, it's wow. still a baby seat. That's, that's amazing. That's, that's awesome. And if you look um, at the design, it's based off of an egg shape and a mm. wood. Two of the safest things you can think of in the, in the world because an egg is shaped like an egg for a certain reason. It's not just a, a shape. All eggs are similar because they have, there's a reason for that. The stress impact loads. And woodpeckers have this ability to smash their heads repeatedly against the trunk of a tree and not go nuts. It's how it's designed. So you huh. blend two technologies together, which nobody's ever done, and you have something that's incredibly useful for society. Yeah. So, wow. Uh, Wow, that's amazing. Do you think that's I'm working on the first two cars that are going to race on the moon uh, early next year? They're going to go up on SpaceX. They're going to drop them off on the lunar surface. There's a track that's been digitized and laid out, and they're going to race each other for 12 hours, an endurance race on the surface of the moon. And we'll send it, we'll have it retransmissioned back to Earth, and you can watch on YouTube or with your VR goggles, watch this race. <laughs> that's incredible. Wait, when is that? When are you, when are you saying that's going to two is scheduled to have these two uh, designed, uh, uh, call them cars, but they're not cars. They're kind of like lunar rovers. Um, but, of course, they're designed. They have to look cool. They're like race cars. But what they have underneath them, obviously, is the, the battery package and the solar chargers, wheels that when they tell you you can't reinvent the wheel, that's BS because you really can. The wheel is not perfect. <laughs> when you see these wheels, you'll understand. Wow. So, yeah. Are these, uh, uh, so are these uh, driven remotely or how? how? Yeah. Latency signal because when you send a signal to the moon, it takes a few seconds to get there and a few seconds to get back to confirm. So we're not going to have hairpins and things like that, but it'll be yeah. a sweeping track. Um, it's speed, but we can't go too fast because if you take off after hitting a bump, it's going to take a while for it to come back down, and that compromises your your lap speed. Wow! <laughs> oh my God, that's incredible. Yeah, but here's what's more incredible: the plan is to, well, they're being built right now uh, out near Colorado, Utah, right in that area there, and uh, the plan is to have a replica track which is being built in Florida. Um, a replica track of the moon track <clears throat> and have two astronauts that have been trained up on the ISS, the international space station, do the race in reverse. So from the ISS, they'll be able to race, uh. work the bugs out over a few months. And then when we're all set and ready, we'll go back to the moon. <laughs> That's amazing. Wow. Wow. Um, Technology. I mean, the design is based on, it's not for fun. It sounds like fun, but you you know, the lunar rover, when they go back up on the Orion mission in 2024, is going to need advanced materials, lightness, uh, speed, um, indestructible. You know, if it flips over, it's got to get back over on its own. Yeah. You know, traction, dust control, everything like that is included in this. So it's kind of innovation project. It, you know, it, 
those that that concept is something I I don't think in a million years I would have uh, thought of. But now, as you say it, like now I'm just like it lives in my brain now. Like I could see it, and uh, it's I think that's just a testament to your uh, ability to to think, uh, as you said earlier, like, I guess like a kid, you know, you're like inventing these just uh, amazing ideas and, and putting them into the world. It's just incredible what you're doing. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I mean, if you don't enjoy it, it's that, um, yeah, it's, it, it's amazing that we get paid to do stuff like this for a profession, but, um, it's not about the money. If you, if you're a designer, I think you can't do anything else. I love other stuff, but what gets me up in the morning is being able to think that you're going to actually create something that that will i guess bring a benefit to the world in one way or another yeah and that that feels good um oh that's awesome you've got that opportunity then it's almost a it's a sin if you don't do it you know it's it's yeah on you if you don't if you have that opportunity and you don't use it then then what are you doing here right (laughs) well uh well, Frank, I don't want to take up another second of your time because I feel like you could be inventing or building or doing something much cooler <laughs> than uh, than talking to me. But uh, but thank you. So this is very, very inspiring uh, stuff you've been saying here. And I cannot wait uh, to see what you come up with next because this is this is incredible. So thanks so much. Really appreciate talking to you. It's a pleasure, Dan. Thank you. All right. That's our episode, folks. Hope you enjoyed it. Get a Real Job comes out every Tuesday. So be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you harvest your favorite podcasts. Leave us a review. Give us a share. Don't make me beg people. Go to entrepreneur.com for new episodes of this and to listen to our other great podcasts. Thanks. Thanks.